Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Allie Miller is an integrative functional medicine practitioner, registered and licensed dietitian with a background in naturopathic medicine, currently living in the great city of Austin, Texas. She's the author of the cookbook, Naturally Nourished, Food is Medicine for Optimal Health, The Anti-Anxiety Diet, and The Anti-Anxiety Cookbook. And today we're going to talk about everything from eating for anxiety, to vitamin D, to the things you need to know if you're a woman considering intermittent fasting or keto. Allie, welcome. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. So you have a new book, The Anti-Anxiety Diet. So let's start there and the connection between inflammation and anxiety. Sure. So when we think of a biomarker or a lab value to assess, we think of C-reactive protein. That's kind of the big standard. And there is a lot of research that supports that an elevated CRP is three to five times more likely to be diagnosed with anxiety or depression. And I liken this to, if you think of your neurotransmitters as basically these signals and receptors that fire, when the brain is in a state of even low-grade mild inflammation, it's like the neurotransmitters are trying to fire through jello. (laughs) There's like this sluggish conductivity. And so that's why we see with antioxidant strategy and anti-inflammatory approaches, more enhanced cognition as well as mood stability. So what are some of the signs that It just might be inflammation that's the root cause of your anxiety. So, you know, inflammation has been deemed the silent killer, and there are some, you know, out there signs like joint pain, chronic fatigue. There can also be weight gain or stubborn metabolism, but then there can also be even inflammatory impact from digestive function. So as my first approach within the anti-anxiety diet, I remove the top inflammatory foods because I really feel that once you wring out the diet, the drivers of inflammation in the diet, that that's when you start to get better feedback from your body on what works favorably for you. And so what are some of those foods? So I remove corn, soy, gluten, dairy, and sugar. And uh, gluten and dairy, I I go deep into all of these mechanisms, and gluten and dairy are interesting when we're talking about like manic bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, because they work on our opioid receptors. They both cross the blood-brain barrier, and they actually sit on the opioid receptors, which can drive addictive tendency, outrage, and really severe mood imbalance. So then what, I want to go back to inflammation for a second because yeah. <laughs> we talk, we love, inf- we, we love to hate inflammation here. We talk about <laughs> it a lot, but I always say it's sort of this nebulous catch-all term. So yeah. h- how do you define inflammation? So inflammation is essentially, it's a, it's a process of healing in the body, truly. You know, inflammation is a required process for us to recover from an injury. The five cardinal signs of inflammation are redness, tenderness to touch, loss of function, pain, and swelling. So you can have any of that going on, and I kind of liken, this is an extreme example, but if you're eating pro-inflammatory foods, it's as if to some level that your belly or your GI tract is responding to like a stab wound, you know, not to that extreme, but you do lose blood flow in the central area, so you're not going to absorb the nutrients from your food as as readily. Um, The blood flow is very essential to pull nutrients into that gut-blood barrier. You also are going to have lower peristalsis, so you might have slower bowel motility or constipation. You might have bloating or distension. So we can see loss of function essentially in the digestive tract when we eat inflammatory foods as well. And so you talked about removing gluten, soy, dairy. Uh, 
I'm curious on a personal level, do you ever have those things? So currently the one that, so corn is actually the biggest irritator to me on a GI level and gluten is one that is quite severe as well. So those two, I try to not play with at all, but living in Texas, I, I make the exception for whatever reason often for like heirloom blue corn, um, especially if I'm carb cycling. So I practice a ketogenic diet generally. Um, but if I'm carb cycling and I'm at like Suerte, which is- I was going to say, that's like my favorite, <laughs> Colleen and I went to Suerte. That's like my, the, my favorite all time Mexican restaurant. And it's, it's one so of those, good. It's one of those dances where, you know, it's like every time human error, you know, and I'll tell my husband, don't let me do that again, man. <laughs> but I'm pretty tight um, for sure. But with gluten, don't mess around with that one. And uh, sugar, it's funny because my perspective of the ketogenic diet, which we can unpack later, is is more about it being a metabolic state versus like a yes or no food list. Mm-hmm. And so my recipes, although they are all keto, they incorporate things like dates and grade B maple syrup and raw and filtered honey. So I don't do high amounts of carbohydrate as far as sugar, but that would be debatable of whether I eat sugar. Got it. Well, I'm glad you go to Suerte. <laughs> so what does your food pyramid look like? So it's pretty rich in anti-inflammatory proteins, which would be defined by me as like wild caught fish, grass-fed pasture-raised proteins. Uh, And it's also going to have a good amount of cruciferous vegetables. Sulfur is so important in the diet to support detoxification, provide us uh, balance for our hormones when we're talking about things like estrogen dominance. And there's just so many estrogenic compounds now in the industrialized food system that I think that sulfur is really important to regulate that. So this is like cauliflower, uh, looking at Brussels sprouts, broccoli, that whole family there, cabbage. And then um, antioxidant-rich fruits would be seen from our berries. Uh, So the lower glycemic fruits are the ones that I would go for on a more regular basis. And then uh, nuts and seeds comprise a good amount of it as well. All of my baked recipes use almond flour or hazelnut flour or something like that as the base. And a hefty amount of fat. (laughs) So olive oil, avocado, and all of the things coconut. So I I have a clarification question. So you're not a fan of corn. What about lectins? Yeah, I love that question. So, you know, I believe that there is a influence of lectins on the diet and with anything, whenever we're going to demonize something, we have to question what is the susceptibility of the individual. So for someone that has poor gut integrity, uh, someone that has been on high dose oral antibiotics, someone that's under chronic stress, because actually stress alone increases your secretory IgA, that's a marker of your mucosal membrane, the gut lining. Someone that's under chronic stress, someone that has known leaky gut or has been on long-term NSAID use and has susceptibility, their gut is going to be in much more of a fragile state where lectins would be much more concerning. And that's compounded if they don't have ample good gut bacteria, which can help to work away at lectins, and enough hydrochloric acid. So that's the stomach juice that should, on a chemical level, start to denature and break down the lectins. So it's kind of a structural influence as well as a chemical impact and even a microbiome impact that I believe would make it how much do you have to avoid them. Got it. So you don't go as far as our our favorite lectin fan, Dr. Gundry. Right. But I hear you. But to be fair, you know, if someone has Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis, I'm actually going to do like a three-day bone broth fast as a way to drive them into remission. Um, Now, where Dr. Gundry and I have have a little bit of oppositional view beyond the lectin thing is the animal proteins, because I use those very therapeutically in a lot of autoimmune protocols. Got it. We're going to come back to the animal proteins. (laughs) But so we're talking about Austin. We're in New York. Fall here, daylight savings, darker. I tend to think of like mood, seasonal mood disorder, less sunlight, vitamin D. 
And so what's your, what's your take on vitamin D and you're in Austin, a little more sunlight, little, like how much does where you live play into the need for vitamin D and what are your thoughts in general? So, you know, it also starts with genetics. Do you have a a vitamin D receptor SNP, which is a single nucleotide polymorphism, uh, basically. Can you say that again? (laughs) I didn't catch that. A SNP. Uh, I like to use uh, large words. Uh, Single nucleotide polymorphism. So this is like the most known SNP out there is MTHFR. Yes. uh, When we're talking about methylation, right? Yep. So there's also vitamin D receptor SNPs. So those individuals are going to not have as much utilization of vitamin D. When we're looking at the serum levels or a blood blood test, I like to see vitamin D between 50 to 100. And what a lot of people don't know, it's a vitamin, but it's a pro-hormone. So it plays a huge role with cognitive function. It plays a huge role with how the thyroid functions. It plays a huge role with sexual hormone balance, including testosterone and muscle maintenance, which can then trickle down to metabolism. Uh, and I, I see that definitely, and there there is research to support that when d- vitamin D levels are insufficient, uh, or especially if they fall under 30, that mood and cognitive function can definitely be impaired. Need your vitamin D, guys. Yes. <laughs> so something else we talk a lot about here is blood sugar mm-hmm. and blood sugar imbalance. So how do we know when that's out of whack? I feel blood sugar irregularity from, from toddler and honestly, even your baby's first food into adulthood and, and you know geriatric population, the roller coaster of blood sugar spikes and crashes is the number one influencer on mood and uh, also like ADHD, uh, energy regulation. And so when I look at food as medicine, it's a double-edged sword. It's both about removing the irritants, but then an abundance of compounds that therapeutically heal. So the first step of, I think, really grounding a child, an adult, and balancing mood and mind is taking out naked carbohydrates. And what I mean by that is, um, you know, if you think of like breast milk, right? Breast milk is actually predominantly keto- ketogenic for a baby. So breast babies, milk is keto. Yeah, it is. It's not that <laughs> radical of a diet. Um, it's really very true. You know, there's also CBD in breast milk as well. There's all, Really? Yeah, natural cannabidiol. You make higher amounts of cannabidiol in breast milk because it's immunologically supportive. It's anti-inflammatory. It helps baby thrive and grow. So babies have an amazing endocannabinoid system. That's that's how it inoculates. Yeah, right. You learned it here. Um, so so you know babies do really well on breastfeeding, and that's a big part of you know the immunological part of probacteria. But I believe it's the blood sugar stability. Whereas formula-fed babies get higher blood sugar spikes, and then if you take that to baby's first food. My Stella, we did avocado first, and then we did wild salmon. She had coconut oil early on because I was using that topically for you know mastitis prevention. Uh, but often children right away start with those packs, like squeezes of applesauce. That's not a complex carbohydrate. It's already almost pre-digested, and it's really going to spike the blood sugar levels. So when I say no naked carbs, what I mean is if you're giving your baby sweet potato, I want you roasting it in coconut oil. If you're doing with your toddler apple and Instead of having them grab an apple or banana or even an adult running out the house, I'd prefer you to have almond butter with that. And that kind of sits like a lid on the jar. Mm. It doesn't let the blood sugar spike as rapidly, which means you don't drop into that hanger mode. And then, you know, the mood stuff goes even more rampant. You know what's funny? Our almost three-year-old Ellie now loves, it, it's a little bit of a naked carb, but she she loves siete tortillas with nothing on them. Okay. It's like... Who? <laughs> I'm like, this is your like snack now. Yes, um, better than a corn chip, I, I would say. Yes, it, it is. It is. 
So going back to something you mentioned earlier in keto, I am well aware as being in a household with my wife and two daughters and being raised by women and our audience at Mind Buddy Green is predominantly women that, you know, keto is different for, for men and women. Let's talk a little bit about that. Sure. So, you know, again, like I said, the ketogenic diet, it's become very buzzworthy. And yet, like I said, breastfed babies are, are keto, even in utero, babies use ketones for, for survival. And when we think of the hunter gatherer survival, anytime we didn't have food um, and anytime that we didn't have an abundance of carbohydrate, we were working as a hybrid machine, making both ketones and glucose. It's not mutually exclusive. So when you go on a keto diet, your glucose levels don't zero out. They often will drop and they'll regulate. So you get off of that roller coaster of blood sugar irregularity, but they don't they don't double out because there's a lot of misinformation out there about you know the thyroid hormone. You require glucose to make thyroid hormone, or the brain needs glucose to thrive. Glucose levels don't zero out when you're mm-hmm. making ketones, and so you know production of ketones can be done through carbohydrate restriction. Generally, an intro is like less than 30 grams of total intake. But with that being said, there's metabolic flexibility. So how men and women are different is that men generally hold more muscle mass, and women generally hold more body fat and to make ketones we can do this through again carb restriction not eating or time restricted eating or fasting and then we can do this by eating an abundance of fat or metabolizing endogenously our fat stores so some of the magic of ketosis incorporates the hormone leptin and leptin is a satiety hormone and this is kind of what what segregates also men and women predominantly lectin docks on our hypothalamus. And this is a part of the brain that is the regulatory system of the brain. And I think that this is a part of what gives people the quote unquote keto high. Um, I know the first time I experienced it, I wanted to hug a stranger in the parking lot. And I was like, is this legal? Am I, am I supposed to feel this awesome? It's keto legal. It feels <laughs> that good. And um, not exogenous ketones, just, just like the true production from in my body. And uh, leptin is a satiety hormone, but I would argue that it's actually a regulating hormone. It tells the body that it's safe. And you know, in, in that's why I use the ketogenic diet within the anti-anxiety diet, because when ketones cross the blood-brain barrier, they actually have an impact on reducing inflammation in the brain, but they also have an impact on upregulating GABA, which is a natural anti-anxiety compound. So you get this like generalized grounding. Now we have leptin receptors on the thyroid and our ovaries. So for women, they have a lot more leptin sensitivity um, or uh, they're susceptible to dropping too low of leptin, especially if they're low body fat. And I deal with the population of, I'm 35, I have a three-year-old, women that are type A go-getters that want to do all of the things and they don't have that much weight to lose. You know, it might be that three to five pounds or just a mere composition change. And so if they layer fasting as well as tight carb restriction, often their leptin levels decline and then the body says, I'm not safe. And what happens is the thyroid can get off. We can also start to see sexual hormone dysfunction or loss of cycle. So women's menstrual cycles are really a regulating sign that the body is safe or balanced. The body feels or perceives the safety to carry a child. And that's where I see a big variance with women needing carb cycling often, especially if they're at a low body fat, they exercise and they don't sleep enough. (laughs) And then they're under eating, which is kind of classic. Interesting. So one of the things you mentioned also that goes hand in hand with keto oftentimes is is fasting, specifically intermittent fasting. And again, the differences between women and men there. Yes. So how do you view fasting with regards to how they are different? 
so, the sexes. Sure. So there's a lot of benefit to fasting. Like human growth hormone goes up. You know, we see a lot of benefits on inflammation and the ever spoken autophagy or the cellular cleanup, can we, right? Well, can we talk about that yeah. one too? But, yeah. but let's go back to the women. Okay. I, I love autophagy. <laughs> okay. Um, so yeah, sidebar that. But um, same thing. It kind of depends on, I think, more than women or men, the amount of body fat that you have. Because I've seen men drop too low of leptin from extended fast, like 36-hour fast. Now, this man was at like a 7 or 8% body fat to start with. So he, he, I always ask people, why are you fasting? Right. You know, and it's like, well, for autophagy. Um, it's like, but like, you know, you, you don't have the reserves. And so what happens if you extend your fast and you don't have ample body fat is that the body kind of goes into freakout mode. You actually make more epinephrine or adrenaline because the body's trying to survive. It's sending you signals sure. that it's starving because it is. <laughs> and so we shouldn't white knuckle anything in wellness. You can overdo anything. You know, you can overdo lifting weights. You can overdo carb restriction. You can overdo intake. Um, and it's just kind of one of these strategies that we have to be mindful of. So I personally do a 16-8, um, which is like a classic 16 hours without food, yep. eight-hour feeding window. So I generally break my fast around noon most days and cut off eating around 8 p.m. But I do a fat fast because I find with my current percent body fat, my activity factor, my stress levels and lack of sleep as being a mom of a toddler, uh, that I need to add fat to my coffee or my matcha in the morning. Otherwise, my body goes into that a little bit more anxiety driving mode. Uh, so you don't, so for you, the fat helps and it doesn't break your fast. Well, right. And that's the dance of you know, when we get into the nerdy stuff of mTOR and XYZ yeah. about, about autophagy. Again, it's not a light switch of on or off. You can upregulate autophagy by mere calorie restriction. You can upregulate autophagy by fasted exercise. So there's so many techniques that can rev up without being so myopic of all or nothing approach. Well, I think it's important. I think the all or nothing comes in. I think, look, we live in a world when it's just people are busy. They got a lot going on. They say, just tell me what to do. Right. And I want to do it harder, <laughs> faster, more. I'm going to rev so, it up. So if it's 16.8, I'm going to do 36. I'm totally. going to double it. But that that's dangerous with fasting and keto. Yeah. Yep. And so going back to, so you do the 16.8, you integrate fat in your coffee. Um, what do you like, besides being myopic, what do you find that people just like totally get wrong? around fasting and, and fasting keto. oh yeah. i was gonna say oh for keto I have for a both huge for okay. both okay yeah we'll sure. start there so for keto it's it's that you have to add erythritol and stevia and non-caloric sweeteners to a food to make it keto <laughs> i can't tell you how often again it's it's getting out of this space of a yes or no food list and understanding that this is a metabolic process so my carb restriction to get into nutritional ketosis is going to be very different than yours and very different from a 300 pound boxer who's just ripped he can probably eat 150 grams of carbs and make ketones you know so when we're looking at the world of food products, what I've found, which is very frustrating, is we're breaking up with sugar, so that's a good thing, but we're replacing that addiction with another abusive partner, non-caloric sweeteners. And whether they are chemical-derived or quote-unquote natural, most of them have digestive disturbance. Yes. Most of I mean, Most of them give me the runs. I was going to say, have you ever been at a keto conference in the bathroom? <laughs> um, and it's like a Pollock painting. Um, <laughs> If you're, if you're taking one thing from this podcast, guys, if you go to a keto conference, stay away from the bathroom. <laughs> but um, they're also bacteriostatic. Even stevia is bacteriostatic, meaning that it actually eliminates 
probacteria in the gut. And then there's actually psychosomatic impact. Like there's a taste receptor on our tongue called GLP-1. So when you taste, and it stands for glucagon-like peptide, when you taste sweet, regardless of your body having a glucose spike or actually having calorie or carb influence, when you taste sweet, your pancreas responds to that. So it's like you're ding-dong ditching your body and setting up this false sense. And then the, the fifth reason or whatever I'm on is that you're just maintaining this addiction that sweet is safe. So I'm all about channeling savory. I'm all about using whole real foods and using, like I said, the natural sweeteners. Like I have a banana in a recipe for a low carb zucchini collagen muffin. I like bananas. I think they get a bad rap. Me too, man. And you know, they're, they're high in B6. They provide tryptophan, which is fantastic for mood stability. There's a lot of benefit, soluble fiber, great support for the microbiome. It's a prebiotic. And I can't tell you how many people will, you know, be on my Instagram or whatever and being like, well, but I subbed out that banana for a half cup of erythritol. And I'm oh. like, right, there's no nutritional value. There's potentially health hazard. And you're maintaining this false high receptor of sweet as being norm. A twelfth of a banana in a recipe is less than three grams of carbs contribution in your muffin. Oh. Uh, and so I think that that's the biggest frustration I have in the world is of keto is getting back to whole real foods and channeling savory and really breaking up with that hyper palatable sweet flavor mm-hmm. well, I, for for sugars personally i like coconut sugar it's the cleanest yeah. it's not keto friendly but I, it, it is clean but it is keto friendly that's why we got to rewrite the script because as long as you metabolically are producing ketones it is so you know you could have probably a quarter cup of coconut sugar in a recipe again eating one twelfth of the recipe you're easily going to still stay keto so some so uh, we have to come back to autophagy why okay. is autophagy so exciting <laughs> So I I think it's two part. One, so autophagy is the process. I I liken it to like a good visual is like the Pac-Man, right? (laughs) The Pac-Man mouth eating up um, the dysfunctional parts of your cell. So it allows your immune system to identify dysfunctional parts of on on your cellular matter and either do away with them, right? So it upregulates natural killer cells so we can remove viruses, we can remove bacteria and pathogen, but we can also repair in this process during autophagy. So it's kind of like a inventory, a cleanup and a repair mechanism. And when we are in a fed state, autophagy is downregulated. So this fasting concept of autophagy is that the body will optimize that that regulatory function. And again, not that radical when you go back to hunter-gatherer when we weren't having fourth meal or we weren't told by our trainer to eat every three to four hours and watch your clock and eat by that based on real intuitive hunger. So what's your take on when autophagy starts to kick in on, on, is it hour 16, 18? I think it's so individual based on the, based on the individual. Again, were they under stress? I mean, I know personally, if I'm having a really high stress day and I'm not supplementing with nervines and L-theanine and a good B-complex, that I actually produce less ketones, likely because I'm putting out more cortisol and because cortisol is a glucocorticoid. So there's just too many metabolic mechanisms to, again, say like there's a sweet spot of what autophagy is regulated by. We're all individuals. Yes. (laughs) Different ages, sizes, you name it. So speaking of being unique individuals there is a lot of back and forth and there has been for as long as i've been doing this on animal products uh so what's your take on on where do they where do they have a place so in in my approach to healing the body i believe that they're essential um in fact in the anti-anxiety diet which is the the non-fiction work prior to the cookbook that i put out recently i talk about uh becoming a recovering vegan and really how my experience i had the 
impact of going low fat. I was a dancer as my first entry into college. And so I was fat restricted, eating a bunch of garbage, like, you know, Sour Patch Kids, they're fat free. So (laughs) so I can eat them. Um, And so, you know, I had the classic chemical processed product diet, followed that by a vegan diet, which survived on vital wheat gluten and, you know, a lot of the other inflammatory foods, high amounts of soy. And then I did a, a four month raw vegan stint talk about high lectins and anti-nutrients in the gut after my gut was already pretty rocked. Um, And that's when I first started to experience panic attack. And that's when I was diagnosed with Hashimoto's thyroiditis. Uh, I had super low ferritin count, which is your iron store. It was at a Mm. two. You can start to lose hair at under 60. Uh, Yeah. So I I had severe brain fog because iron carries oxygen to your brain. Uh, And I made that decision in that moment. One of my mantras I use in my clinic is doctrine creates disconnect. And I was so indoctrined with the vegan diet saving the planet, saving me, that it was the way to go, that I wasn't listening to the feedback of my body. And when I made that transition to more of an ancestral diet, when I started to incorporate things like bone broth, when I started to incorporate oysters, which are fantastic mineral density, and um, organs in my diet, I really took on a snout-to-tail approach when I started reincorporating animal. It felt more sustainable. It felt more ancestral. And that's when I really started to thrive and heal. Well, you said it, you know, listen to your body. How do you feel? Do the, do the blood work, do the lab, see what you're responding to. It's, it's not binary. Right, right. And it's just not black and white. So for me, when I was younger, I used to eat a ton of meat. I felt pretty much okay. Now I'm 45, can't eat as much. See the labs go the wrong way. So I have to eat more plant-based. I'm MTHFR as well. Um, but it's interesting. And, and I think for everyone, it goes back, how do you feel? Listen right. to your body. And there is a lot of great personal stories. We've had people on the podcast who've suffered from autoimmune. And once they incorporate like great, you know, wild salmon back at those great omegas back yes. in their diet, it makes a huge difference. Yes. And eggs, egg yolks yeah. are so fantastic. Yeah. And I think that's one that we could kind of, again, break that doctrine with. Because a non-fertilized egg, if you have backyard chickens, they can be living the life. <laughs> you know, you, you don't have to do anything harmful to them. And um, that's a way that I think we could kind of, again, maybe over time, that's something that will open into the world of, of the vegan diet. Who knows? It is an animal product. But yeah. maybe conditions and maybe ethics are on board with that because choline is such a vital nutrient for MTHFR sure. to make acetylcholine, which is really the transductor of our neurotransmitters. And we see 40% of Americans deficient in choline and brain fog, memory issues, and, and mood mm. are big impacts. So what are the things outside of nutrition that you tell people you're working with that they, they, can, they should focus on when they're dealing with anxiety in terms of lifestyle choices? Yeah, so a big one, breath work is huge. And I'm a big fan of Dr. Andrew Wiles' 478, mm. uh, which is in through the nose for four, holding for seven, and a whooshing, it's not going to sound good, but a shh, kind of shushing, whooshing out, almost like you're uh, pushing out the air from an inner tube. And that exhale two to one ratio, so you're mm-hmm. exhaling eight, you're inhaling four. Often when we're under high chronic stress, we take sh- short, shallow breaths, and we don't exhale, like when you go into a spa, right, exhale. And um, there's been research study on the 478 that it actually sends signals down the vagus nerve, which is the largest nerve in the body from the brainstem to the colon. And it takes us into a parasympathetic state. So when we're under high stress or chronic anxiety, that's the first kind of name of the game is getting out of that sympathetic fight or flight mode and letting the body feel safe. And so 478, about five cycles of that is a really great way to deflate and and downregulate that anxiety. 
I love, I do the uh, inhale for two, exhale for four. And another one I know people love is the box breathing, the four, four, and four. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's like a Navy SEAL okay. tactic. That's interesting. But but essentially all accomplish the same thing in right. varying degrees of science. But yes, huge fan of breath work. Yes, yes. You can turn it on. What I say, it's it's you can turn it on immediately. Right. And I think, you know, if you're driving and you're in traffic or something happens, it's hard to, if you practice TM or Vedic meditation, it's all right, I need to take my 20 minutes right now. But breath work, boom. Right immediate response. And I think mantra is quite powerful as well. Agreed. So I do a lot of work with mantra with myself, with clients, and whether it's downloading negative thoughts and rewriting the script, just taking out the negative term and neutralizing, that usually feels more authentic, especially Mm -hmm. for men, I find. Uh, Men sometimes think that mantra is a little woo, uh, but I can at least take their negative thoughts to neutrality. Um, And so instead of thinking, I have no idea what the hell I'm doing with my life, it's, (laughs) (laughs) it's, I'm, I'm on a process and this is a path. Or if it's, I hate my job, it's, this may not be my passion, but this is my present. Um, You know, and so you can always reframe things to just get out of that victim role because that only perpetuates that, again, drive of epinephrine or adrenaline to get into survival mode. And that perpetuates that that anxiety. I love that. So with regards to anxiety, anyone who's listening... You know, if they're struggling right now, any like, okay, any, any advice, like you got to do these three, three basic things just to get started. Yes. I think that incorporating probiotics into your diet is essential. And if you don't tolerate probiotics, you may need to plow the gut before you can repopulate. Like I've had clients say, oh, I ate kimchi or sauerkraut or drink a kombucha or, or had a live probiotic capsule. And I felt like an atom bomb went off in my belly. If that happens, that means that you're in a state of dysbiosis. And I find that the gut has such a huge, I mean, I know you've had so many guests talk about the impact of the enteric nervous system or the gut being the brain of, of, you know, the brain in the gut of your body. But when your gut is in a dysbiotic state of overgrowth of bad bacteria, you actually make more epinephrine or adrenaline. And when your gut is in a symbiotic state, when it's accepting probiotics and you're actually making lacto and bifido strains of bacteria or they're viable in your gut, you produce more serotonin and GABA. So the presence of your microbiome and the balance of it can be supported by consumption of probiotic rich foods and that would be the first one. And there's been research studies com- comparing pharmaceutical drugs um, and double-blind placebos to a probiotic capsule and a placebo, and we see a significant impact on anxiety and depression. Guts your second brain. Yes, totally. So that was one. Okay, uh, the second one I would say I would probably go back to the gut as well, and I would have to say bone broth, collagen, gelatin. Um, you know, any of these recipes that incorporate, uh, I have an awesome avocado pudding recipe that I love to do for breakfast that incorporates gelatin in there. I have a matcha gelatin pudding as well, which is fantastic. And these just help to provide that oopy goopy support for our gut lining. And that's going to support our gut integrity to absorb the nutrients as well as prevent that leaky gut, which would drive that inflammation back to kind of square one. So last question. We were talking about Austin earlier. We all love Austin. What are your favorite places to go in Austin? Oh, well, one of my favorite restaurants for sure. Well, I love Picnic. Of course. Hello, Naomi. We love Picnic. goes without saying. Uh, And I love Odd Duck. Uh, That's a fantastic restaurant off of Lamar. Uh, Very seasonal fare. And um, they do all their, like, ferments in home and such. And there's a new favorite called Pitchfork Pretty that I've been digging. Yeah. What do they have there? Uh, So they have a chickpea fried chicken which is pretty dreamy and it's cooked in like tallow so not industrialized oils so that's like an exception that i make for an indulgence and um 
I've had really good oysters there. Uh, I've had a lot of incorporation of organ into their dishes and very well sourced. Whenever I'm traveling, I always search farm to table as my first. And sure. I don't search keto. I don't search paleo because I can navigate that stuff again. You know, you just swap things out. It's all about the quality of the sourcing and working with local farmers. Are you a sushi fan? I am moderately. Like, I love a good crudo, but I don't go to sushi restaurants often. I've fallen in love with sushi in Austin at Uchi. Uchi, yeah. Have you been to Uchi Co? No, we haven't. We went to Uchi for the first time last time we were there, and I was like, this is amazing. It's elevated. I'm only doing... But but it's not pretentious either. And so I think years pass when we go out to dinner, sushi in New York or wherever, you know, I'd feel like, oh, I'm not holding the chopsticks right. Like, am I ordering? And, and like, I don't know what to do. I'm getting, and there it was just an amazing experience. And yeah, and yeah huge fan of, of Uchi. Well, thank you so much. Congrats on the cookbook. Thank you. It is an honor to have you here, Thank you. Awesome. It's been fun.